This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Although, not next week or the week after, because I'm off on my holidays. So, Patrick McGuire is going to be looking after you on the radio and right here on the Redbox Podcast as he uh, steps down from being editor of the Redbox Morning email and last bit takes up the baton in a couple of weeks' time. So, if you are a Times subscriber, just go to the times.co.uk forward slash Redbox and you can get red box in your inbox every morning. Lovely. Right, we come to the end of Food Week. It's quite a boozy, a boozy end to Food Week. Coming up on today's episode, the art of the political lunch. Few people in Westminster have had as many lunches as Tim Shipman, the chief political commentator of the Sunday Times. So he actually lost a bet with me. We were doing PMQs a few weeks ago. He bet me that Keir Starmer would mention Boris Johnson. He didn't, so he owed me lunch. So we went for lunch and we took a couple of microphones and over lunch we discussed the art of taking ministers for lunch and the state of politics and Tim's book and much else besides. Hopefully, it's a fun listen. But to be honest, I don't care. It was nice to have lunch. In a moment, we'll have the columnist as well and beer tasting. Yes, there's a lot of booze. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that in Food Week, this still doesn't quite work. Food Week! Food Week! Food Week! We learned that nobody who works on my show remembers this advert. Uh, we learned that Tory MP Robert Goodwill is definitely looking in your trolley. Sometimes what people have got in their trolleys and then see, you know, those people might be sort of slightly overweight and think, well, no wonder you're overweight, look what you've bought. Uh, we learned that guacamole canapes aren't improved by putting insects in them. Guacamole, so avocado and peppers and tomatoes yeah. and, and uh, crickets. Crickets? Yeah. Yeah. Hey! Oh, quickamole. Mm. I mean... I'd have probably liked it without the crickets. You have slightly hidden the crickets in there, and you? you smuggled them in. We learned that Charlie Whelan was in the Red Lion when telling Tony Blair his Euro dream was over. Oh dear, you know, I don't normally get calls off Tony Blair, so I went outside the pub, found a little private spot. And, so you did at um, least put your drink down to take the call from Tony Blair? Well, no, I might have had the spritzer in my one hand. <laughs> but, you know. uh, we learned this from listener Natalie. If you own a dog, ketchup is great to get rid if they roll in fox poo. Uh, we learned that Tom Allen really doesn't care about the big food fight question, jam or cream first. No one cares. No one cares, cares is my answer to it. No one cares. <laughs> it's sort of one of those things that's like, well, it's a fun debate, isn't it? But it's it just sort of gets people in Cornwall and Devon really angry. Uh, we learned that if you're head chef at Checkers, there is one guest who's the most stressful. The Queen came and it was a very intimate, small lunch. Uh, and I felt a lot of pressure on that one. Uh, but in our food fights, there was no contest against Times Radio listener and brown sauce fan, Dominic. Naturally, I think you've completely missed out the, the, the question of aesthetics. I mean, the visual harmony of the brown sausage and the brown sauce. Um, I, I, I must say, I'm reassured that in a world that gets sidetracked by the trivia of Donald Trump and his fictions, that there's a radio station taken seriously. <laughs> seriously. And this is what we need to be talking about. I love Dominic. I think we should get Dominic on every week just to be cross about things. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun this week on Food Week, I have to say. But the main thing, apart from the fact that we learned that we love Dominic, the main thing we learned this week is that this might be the best story we've ever had on the show. 
actually had a guest one time. They were on part of a tour group and they were going out for the day. And one guy didn't turn up and the tour guide asked me to give the room a call. So I phoned the room. The guy answered, sounded very confused. Um, he said, was he okay? And he was, I'm in a and said, I'm stuck in my room and I don't know how to get out. And he didn't know his way out. And I said, well, <laughs> where are you at? Are you on the bed at the minute? He said, yeah. Um, I said, well, if you look to your left, there's two doors. I said, yeah, um, one's the bathroom. Yeah, I've, no, I've been in there. And he's, I said, well, the other room isn't, isn't on the way out. That's how you get out. And he said, right. And he aimed and out a bit more and said, can, can I open that door? I said, yeah, it's a problem with the door. And he said, well, it says do not disturb on it. And I don't know if I can go. And I said, well, that's actually your do not disturb sign too. So, uh, you, can, uh, you can go out that, and that door now if you like. Yes. Oh, so. that's really good. And that is what we learned this week. Right then, it was quite an early start, but if someone's got to do beer tasting before 11 o'clock in the morning, I'm the man for the job. Start for The Columnists. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop frantically battering away at my column. Dirty boy, James. <laughs> uh, India Knight is here. Hi, India. Good morning. And of course, James is here. How are you, James? I'm good, yes. Yes. Always better for hearing that clip of my finest moments on live radio. <laughs> well, I like the way now it's like a Pavlov's dog thing. Every time you play it, you snort. I know. Well, I just, I, it's just so humiliating. I really, it's going to haunt me forever, isn't it? I'm going to run for high office in like, you know, 30 years time or something, going to transition to politics. And that's yeah. going to chase me. Still be bashing away at your column. Now, who better to have here to talk about uh, for Food Week than uh, the Sunday Times' food writer and James, who likes drinking? Yes, yeah, so, yeah totally, yeah. Um, uh, James, let's talk about your column, first of all. It was in, the, in uh, your column uh, yesterday. You were trying to say there are reasons to be cheerful. And I'll be honest, quite a lot of them were food and drink related. Well, I was steaming it with Food Week. Well, it's you. the synergy of Times and Times Radio. <laughs> it all works together. So, uh, forget all the doom and gloom. Why, why should we cheer up? Well, I was trying to say, obviously, things are terrible. But I was trying to find consolations in terrible times. One of them was that... Coffee is just so much better now than it used to be. I was recalling that uh, growing up in Newcastle, nobody knew what a flat white was. And maybe they didn't down south either. And whenever I go back to whenever I go back to Whitley Bay, the flat whites are virtually as good in Whitley Bay as they are in Hackney, which is the centre of all the flat white nonsense. I, and I'm enjoying the everybody's heavy drinking... lifted the word virtually is doing it. What is well, it? What I don't is it be... still they haven't quite sorted out? Well, I don't know. I, I'm trying to be a little bit critical here. I don't want to be overly optimistic. I mean, come on. I mean, a flat white in Hackney, the epicentre of coffee hipsters, is always going to be, you know, at the cutting edge. But, yeah, nobody... I didn't ever remember having a kind of espresso-based coffee uh, growing up, and now they're everywhere. And then that's a genuine improvement because uh, nothing improves life like coffee. Um, do I have any other food and drink-related ones? I'm trying to think where the food and drink ones were. Uh, what do you think, India? Should we should we cheer up and focus on the positives? There were lots of things that it wasn't just coffee. No, there are more substantive things like a more tolerant society and greater support for democracy, but it's the coffee that surely stands out. Uh, what do you think, India? Um, I think they're all very good reasons, um, James's reasons to be cheerful. The problem is that familiarity comes in. And so we stop being grateful for the lovely bookshop or the massively improved cup of coffee or the fact that few people wear ties anymore or that we're more tolerant or that gay marriage uh, is, is, is uh, supported by 78%. Of people, you know, with, these are just things that we take for granted. And so, once you take everything for granted, you're left with the fact that it appears to be November. Um, nobody can pay their mortgage. Food <laughs> prices are insane, and everything is broken. Which would really, I feel, be helped at least by a tiny bit of sunshine. And where I am in East Anglia, the sky is very dark, ominously dark again. It is. I do think the 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 mood of the nature will be greatly improved by some sun. Yeah, it does, actually, very, it does feel very, feel very bleak. At the and it's moment. one of those things where you get, we're, we're sort of constantly clinging to the idea. Oh, I think it might be a bit better next week. It's been terrible for weeks. I can't believe how long it's been rainy for. This is weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I've had, an, I'm furious with it. <laughs> had enough. And what is the government going to do about it? Do you know what's interesting? Actually, the um, the old uh, the mood tracker, the uh, uh, YouGov poll every week uh, measuring your mood. And the number of people who said they're happy has come down quite a bit. It was So it was 51%, and it's come down to about 47 Oh, God. So My column are. was 
Do you think my column tipped everyone over the edge? No one was persuaded. Well, maybe, no, maybe, maybe it's not yet being You'll captured You'll see the, the effect the of my column next yeah. week. It was a surge up as everyone remembers they've got nice coffee and nice bookshops. And what was your point about bookshops? Uh, my point about bookshops was that about 25 years ago, everyone said the internet is going to kill bookshops. There'll be no bookshops anymore. Everyone buy all their books on Amazon. It'll be terrible. And this actually hasn't happened because bookshops have basically got nicer. I think in the old days, bookshops felt like they had to have every single book in the world and basically work as kind of warehouses, which were not always the most pleasant places to be. But the insight of the guy who runs Waterstones, James Daunt, who's basically the kind of visionary who's turned around the book trade in Britain and America, is that if you if the internet is basically your book warehouse, what you want a bookshop to be is a lovely place to go with a cafe, a nice interior design, and you know well-designed lighting... And bookshops now are really nice. I think most Waterstones now are actually lovely places to be. You've got a cafe there, yeah. got posh wood floors. That's brilliant. I mean, that's great. Because I, I, I can remember when bookshops used to just be like a great big barn yeah. full of as many books as possible. Because if you wanted a book, this is the only place you could get it. Yeah, this is fantastic no, I news, you. I think. Now, Indy, you've written one or two books. Yes. How, how many have you written? don't know, about eight, I think. Nine? Wow. Eight? <laughs> uh, Not that's sure. A lot of books. That is a lot of books. But, uh, but go, going into a shop, in a nice shop with a nice atmosphere and feeling a bit booky and fingering all the books, that's that's part of the, 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 the process, isn't it? Yes, and I also think booksellers have got much better. Um, I think what happens now, what I, 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 don't, I don't love a sort of cavernous bookshop and I don't really mind about it having a cafe, although it's a huge bonus if it does have one. But um, booksellers, I think, have become much better informed. And so if you frequent a bookshop, often and the bookseller kind of gets to know your taste if for example you're about to go on summer holiday and you want a recommendation they will be there and give you that recommendation which the algorithm of uh, amazon can't really do very successfully so yeah bookshop it, bookshops particularly independent bookshops are very much a reason to be cheerful good especially sunshine Exactly. Well, actually, the talking of sunshine, um, uh, your food column at the weekend in here was all sort of slightly predicated on the sun being out and everyone relaxing yeah. and, and enjoying. The whole point was it was too hot to put any effort in. Was it? I mean, out? for sake, I wrote it before going on holiday myself, completely convinced <laughs> that it was going to be boiling hot by the time I came back. And so it's basically saying, you know, what to cook when it's simply too hot to get your apron on or use the oven. Um, and really, it should have been a column about... Put the oven on and warm the kitchen. You and dumplings and huddling about <laughs> on the fire, yeah. What is that? We talked a lot about food trends this week, India. What, what, what for you is on its way in and what's on its way out? I don't really believe in food trends. I get, In fact, I get quite irritated by them. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, good food is good. Well, it's like anything, isn't it? Good books are good books, regardless of genre. Good food is good food, regardless of fashion kind of same with clothes you know nice clothes a well-cut jacket is a well-cut jacket and the idea that we and i think this is the fault of the internet partly this idea the idea that we all constantly have to be chasing after the next thing or constantly familiarize now, new ingredients are exciting actually I, that's it's not true what i'm about to say about ingredients but generally that there are fashions and that you know ooh, ooh, you're still eating that how how retro of you i think is but not i i do think that india is the white bean is this something you often mention, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, white beans. White beans. Because I, I'm a total bean convert. I used to despise the bean. I didn't I didn't like the clagginess. I didn't like the I didn't like the texture of them. But then I had a complete conversion because somebody sent me some really delicious beans. I don't want to advertise them because I keep mentioning them in my column and it sounds like <laughs> they've bought me. You're in the pocket of big bean. <laughs> I'm in the pocket of big bean. Mr. Bean. You're in the pocket of Mr. Bean. But that's but they're really delicious beans. Anyway, so I've been eating a lot of beans. Beans also are cheap, which is useful um, at, uh, at the moment. And also they make excellent salads for your sunny day when it's too hot to cook and you're eating outside, i.e. in 2024, if we're lucky. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, we were talking a little about burrata on the show yesterday. Ooh. Yeah, Giles Covenant uh, was saying he's had I, enough burrata. Yeah, I never was that converted to burrata. It's, it's, like, it's like, like avocados. It's just a texture. There's no taste to it. Yeah, so you have to put and all that the other weird, like, it. has this like weird skin in it that I never was a big fan of, to be no, honest. White me. beans, though. I can get behind white beans. I'm not sure about the white bean thing. Don't oh, no, the uh, white beans. New trend, Matt. White... Come on, you're not eating white beans. White beans are really good. The white beans are really good. Try the white beans. Well, Sue, <laughs> in East Dulwich, saying, please tell India her column is fabulous. 
Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, somebody in like, shamanic rain dancer in London says, I love how rainy it is here. Stuff 40 degree heat, wildfires, brown grass and sweat box trains. Bring on the terrible July. I hope I it lasts. Degree heat. I want 30 degree heat. I mean, well, mid-20s. Not... That's fine. That's plenty. I'd take, take 23 at this point. 24. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> the reason the reason why everything's impossible is that you can't actually hunker down and make a stew and dumplings and sit by the fire because it's still warm. Yeah. That's the problem. If it was properly cold, you know, it would be very sad and unfortunate. But at least you could go into kind of autumn <laughs> slash winter mode. Yeah. But you can't because it's too hot. And if you put on a put on a t shirt, you're too chilly. If you put on a jumper, you're too hot. Everything is wrong. Well, let's have a beer. Uh right. <laughs> Aldi is looking for an official beer taster. The successful applicant will receive free beer in exchange for their feedback, which will guide decisions on Aldi's next range. And Emma Budd was Aldi's first ever official beer taster. Joins us now. Hi, Emma. Hi. Uh, thank you for joining us. So we've got, basically, we've got some beers. So I'll chat to you about how you do the job and all of that. But James okay. and I are going to try some beers. You've recommended a couple. So we've got the what, Hop Foundry Tropical Ale. Tropical, yeah. Tropical. Yeah, Tropical. Tropical. And we've got the Blood Orange IPA. Yes. Right, so James, which of those, which, which one do you want to try those first? Oh, God, um, Blood Orange. You go Blood Orange by. then, there you are. Mm -hmm. And I'll go for the Tropical. So, Emma, while we get... Yes. Oh, there we are. Listen, <laughs> listen to that at 11 o'clock. I love Emma. that sound. Uh, Emma, how did you end up as... Oh, very good, James. How did you end up as a uh, beer taster for Aldi? Well, it was a bit of a, uh, I don't, I literally was sat in my living room on my study day. I saw it pop up on social media and I went to apply and I thought, do you know what? Why not? I never win anything, but we'll give it a go. I literally sent an email basically stating that, you know, I worked on cruise ships. I've traveled the world and my favorite thing to do is try the local beer. Um, and I've done that in 52 countries. So what? it's kind of, I know, yeah. It was the best thing. Um, Emma, are you were drunk. Kind of... <laughs> well, um... <laughs> that's so, amazing. Yeah, and... and so, what? So, so, do you need any qualify? Is it basically you're supposed to be like a, an average punter rather than a, than an expert? I think so. Yeah. I, I I didn't say I was an expert. I said it's it's very rare for a girl to love craft beer. Yeah. And to travel to so many countries to, to do that, and it was an amazing. I've been so lucky to be able to do that. And I think they thought, oh, okay, she might have some experience. <laughs> well, um, let's let's. Um, in fact, yeah, because in our in our poll, you're right. In our poll that we did, got you guys to do asking wine or beer, only eleven percent of women said beer. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay, so I've I've actually already had a sip of mug, so I forgot I was supposed to be tasting this properly. <laughs> so I've got the Tropical Tropical. Okay. Um, what? Why did you like this one? So I like pale ales anyway, and with a pale ale, I kind of like a, oh, yeah. a lower percent. So it's four percent. That's very um, nice. Yes, <laughs> and you look for obviously the aroma. I look first. The can's brilliant as well, and kind of the look of the beer, and obviously the taste. That's the main three points that you have to get across. Mm. Um, I was brutally honest <laughs> I, for some of them. I've definitely poured too favorite. much in for this tasting. I'm now just drinking beer. Um, <laughs> Uh, James, now tell us about the um, the Blood Orange IPA that James has got. So the uh, Blood Orange IPA is five point nine percent. So I'd go a little bit careful yeah, on that study one. Study on James. I've only uh, got a very <laughs> I've only got a very small amount. I'm being I'm very disappointed to see it's not orange when you it's, pour it out. It just looks it's not orange, no, but it's got a bitter orange flavour, and it is an India Pale Ale. Um, so you can taste kind of the underbelly of it, but it should taste it quite strong. Like with the malts. Have you got that, James? Give it a go. Yeah, well, hang on. It does taste quite orangey. It tastes like someone sort of put orange squash in it or something to me a little yeah. bit. But I've also got the issue that I only just recently cleaned my teeth. So you know when you drink orange juice? <laughs> you know when you drink orange juice after you've cleaned your teeth and it tastes a bit weird? I don't know if that's distorting my tasting experience. <laughs> India, we've still got India there. Is it still there? India, where do you stand on the beer and wine question? Come on, James, what do you want I am. Um, I no longer drink alcohol, so oh. I don't really have, particularly have a view. But when I did drink alcohol, I I was very much team wine. And the only beer I liked was um, Belgian white beer, including Belgian fruit beer, actually. But only on a really really hot day, as a for just a kind of normal drink, I'd have um, a glass of wine. 
Because this one, this orangey one's really it orangey. It is very orangey, really yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're still both glugging it down, though. No, I don't like it. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I, I like the one you at this Tropicale. Tropicale, the Tropicale one's really... That I am enjoying this, but Emma, the orangey Emma, one Emma, is I think you've orangey. gone mad. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, when, you, when you're actually tasting it, obviously you're doing it in a session... So you get. I was given twelve beers to taste um, within one session. So you can imagine how I felt in the morning. <laughs> how much do you drink at a time? When you do, you have to keep tasting again and again, or do you just take a little sip? Yes, yeah, so, 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 is it like wine tasting? Do you spit? No, it depends. I mean, I I don't like to waste it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Quite. They've, like done, they've done the photo shoot for me, and they brought ten cases of beer round. Um, and they wanted me to try every one, and obviously I wasn't going to spit the beer out. No. Um, so that was a fun afternoon in my you bar. Ten cases of beer in your house. Yeah, they brought ten cases around for the photo shoot. So and <laughs> wow. they left them. So that was that was fun. I had a uh, a lot of actually didn't have any fridge space at all. <laughs> Blimey! Yeah, I'm not sure about this orange. It's very. It's, it's very a, very orangey, yeah. in mm-hmm. my opinion. There's now, uh, they. They start doing uh, um, kind of characteristic ones. They've done World Cup beers, and the World Cup beers were fantastic as well. Well, we've got um, uh, another one. It's a watermelon pale ale. Have you tried this one? I haven't. I think that's a new one. Um, however, I think it's going to be similar to the Tropic Ale, oh, okay. but obviously with a bit more of a, a watermelon. I'm interested to see what you think, actually, on that one. Here we go. Let's have a go on the old watermelon. Do you think the um, inclusion of these fruit flavours is um, to lure women into drinking more beer, the fruitiness? I would probably agree with you. Um, my favourite beer of all time is a fruity beer. Um, it's actually now on taps in bars as well, which a lot of women I see drinking it. Um, so I think, yes, I think you're right on that. I don't want to worry you, James, but the absolute big, big boss of News UK Broadcasting has just looked out the window while we're sitting here with <laughs> two glasses of... Uh, this is responsible. This is responsible beer. employment. This is quite properly. cloudy, isn't it? This 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 watermelon one. Is it supposed to look like that? Well, okay. See, this, this is what sometimes puts people off because if it's cloudy, they think, "Oh, that's going to be thick and, and quite stodgy." But actually, it's not. It's just the way it's made normally. Oh, that's a bit better. That, I, that I wasn't just... getting watermelon. I'm not sure. Was I getting watermelon? Are you, can oh. you taste the watermelon in that? I think there's a the, the uh, aftertaste. There's a bit of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's not getting. Subtle. I can't. Too subtle for me. I've not got a very subtle palate. I can still just taste toothpaste, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a way. What a way to uh, to end the columnist panel on a, on a Friday morning. <laughs> India, so many people have been in touch about your column. They all love it. I love India's column too. It's changed my cooking and diet, uh, says so- TJ in Manchester, where it's dull but not raining. Uh, Elizabeth says, thanks to India, I've tried those chickpeas and they're now on my weekly shopping list. You must get the name for them, Matt, as you will love them too. Go on, go on uh, India, just say the name of them once. They're called, it's called the Bold Bean Company the, the and they are really company. fantastic beans because they cook them. You see, normally people who like tinned beans are just kind of cooked in water. Yeah. They cook them with proper seasoning oh, and nice. so they actually taste of their optimal bean self. Oh, really- yes. Lava Spirit's a big fan of those beans as well, apparently. So there we are. Oh, really? All the young people. All the young people are eating. India Knight and James Merritt then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, the art of the political lunch. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now let's find out what happened when Tim Shipman and I went for lunch at Hawksmoor. The Big Thing on Times Radio. If, if we get through six questions with that reference to Boris Johnson, um, I will buy a very expensive dinner. It's that because we're the party of working people. Yeah. What does it say about him and his party that they won't do the same? Yeah. Winner, winner, surely dinner. There we go. Yeah, well, I'm delighted, actually. It's time we had dinner. It's, t- it's time we had dinner. Yes. Yes. Hello. We've got a table for two, but for Matt Chorley, 1.30. Yes, indeed. Lovely. Um... You lead the way. Oh, I, think, I think a booth would take a booth. Let's take yeah. a booth. Yeah. Perfect, thank you. I'm happy with that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, right, we've got the menu. Are we doing wine or food first? Where is the you normally wine? get something on the go, don't you? Yeah, I think we should we want to start, start with the drink. I think if you had a politician, you'd loosen their tongue a little. How often now do you get a politician who, who might start with a, a livener and a pair of teeth? I think it depends when you're doing it. If it's lunch, almost never these days. Um, most people are, uh, well, you could say dull or you could say professional and don't believe in <laughs> drinking at lunchtime. Um, when I started out in the lobby in 2001, I think most people drank most of the time. Um, I think almost nobody drinks at lunchtime now, and there are even some journalists that don't as well, I'm told. Um, <laughs> if it's a dinner, yeah. and you've specifically booked a dinner with, say, a cabinet minister, they'll often arrive late, usually, because they've had a terribly busy and important day. Yeah, yeah running the country and they quite often do want to uh, let their hair down a little bit um, so you're more likely to be able to entice them into a into a libation but the days of Sunday journalists particularly used to have lengthy lunches on a Tuesday and a Wednesday and there you know there was such a thing in those days as a three bottler um, what? between two people yeah wow yeah now I can't remember the last time I had a three bottler I remember, uh, I'm going to do my Ken Clark story this early, uh, I was at the Independent on Sunday and I was really hung over for some reason, maybe because I'd had a three bottle of it with someone else the night before, and I thought, oh, I was lunch with Ken Clark, that's fine, and so I went to the restaurant, Rue, very posh restaurant just off um, yeah. uh, Parliament Square, it's shut isn't it? It has, it has shut, shut there, yeah, yeah. it was very expensive, COVID, yeah, 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 and uh, Ken Clark was late and I got a call from his office saying he was insisted on walking because he didn't want anyone to know where he was so he didn't have a car so that obviously picked one of the most prominent restaurants yeah, 100 exactly. yards from the house of uh, and he turned up and without even sitting down I think ordered gin and tonics for us both and uh, I think we had a nice bottle of wine and uh, we may even had something afterwards I very agree with it was too and I basically spent the whole time because I was quite young at that point I spent the whole time thinking I'm having lunch with Ken Clark he didn't really tell me he had anything of a great interest. He sort of, he wouldn't, because the beauty of Ken is anything he thought, he'd already said in public many times over. He wasn't, there wasn't a huge amount you'd say off the record that he wasn't willing to say on the record. But there's an element, particularly when you're starting out, of sort of political tourism. It's nice yeah. to meet these people. I remember going to see Nigel Lawson, Michael Hesseltine, who'd been these sort of giant figures in my youth, and just hearing the old stories was enough. Yeah. I'm sorry, out. having water. Can we order some drinks, please? Yeah, thank you. Can I get a Bloody Mary then? Bloody Mary, how spicy do I? Sort of medium. Yeah. Uh, just, just for the sake of, um, let's have a pink Gibson. That's vodka, vodka gin, and a pickled onion. There we go. Great. That sounds good. Perfect. Just to ask, are there any allergies I should be aware of? No, no, not at all. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, in terms of sharpness, the one that sticks in my mind is a serving member of the Shadow Cabinet who arrived before I did. For, I think it was a 12 o'clock lunch, it was an early one. It was, it was not like halfway through the afternoon. And I arrived to discover her halfway down what was very clearly a large gin and tonic. I've had quite a morning. Um, and uh, yeah, she should probably remain nameless. I think some people will think 
this is all a bit ostentatious. Partly us having this lunch. This is not out of the ordinary for, for political journalists. But everyone else is worried about the cost of living, and uh, we're troughing, and politicians are troughing. Why? Why can politicians spare the time? Why should they spare the time? And why does it need to be done over lunch and not a cup of tea or in an office somewhere having a normal meeting like normal people? Well, I would say increasingly it is. Um, it's increasingly a coffee or pop into the department for half an hour. A lot of lunches get cancelled because business gets in the way, which is why if you want to have a really deep dive, you probably ought to go for a dinner. But, you know, politicians and journalists kind of coexist in the same space. Um, we need their stories and they need our publicity. And doing it over lunch is a way of getting to know each other a bit better, maybe establishing some trust, swapping some stories that aren't necessarily kind of massively important to the future of the country, but um, help grease the wheels of, um, you know, frankly, everybody likes to have a bit of a gossip. Um, it's quite helpful to cabinet ministers to hear from journalists who've been around a bit about how things are playing, how things are landing. They don't always get told the truth by their own special advisors or by their own whips. You know, sometimes we can, it's a two-way process. You can be of some use um, to them and, um, you know, by getting to know a politician and getting to hear them sort of in a more relaxed atmosphere, you kind of um, can develop the kind of relationship that has mutual benefits going forward and, you know, some people treat lunch like they treat other things, like a press conference. Some journalists come in and start out, get a few contacts, here, pick up one bit of salacious gossip and immediately trot out and tweet it and go to, you know, put it online. And others build relationships and try to sort of, um, you know, build a long-term rapport with someone where you're more likely to get the goodies in due course. Um, I've sort of always tried to do it the latter way, and I think most, certainly, journalists on Sunday papers would play the longer game. Oh, well, our drinks have arrived. Look at that. There we go. Thank, Thank you very much. much. I was sure about the pickled onions, but... Cheers, Tim. Well, you've got celery and a tomato, and I've got a couple of pickled onions yeah, in the mine. is... Uh, oh, that's well, that's rather good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hit the spot. Lovely. But you and I arrived together. It was often in the olden days when people drank too much at lunch. I think um, a tendency for certain MPs to arrive early for their lunch. I remember Michael Fallon, the former Defence Secretary, used to lunch with David Ruffley. They, when they went hunted as a pack, you would sort of say one o'clock and you'd get there 10, 15 minutes early knowing what they were like and they'd already be sitting there. <laughs> There'd already be a bottle of wine on the table and you were already paying for it. And um, that's interesting. let's put it this way, they didn't respect the expenses limit. That's interesting, two MPs lunch it together, because somebody's just uh, grinding up some ice in the background. Um, lots of people won't know this, but it's quite normal for journalists to lunch together. So two journalists and one MP. Yeah. Well, I, you know, for a long time I used to lunch with Chris Mason, now the to the BBC. I was at Mail Online, he was at the BBC, so a minister would think, well, I've got for an hour's lunch, I can hit the BBC in Mel Online or the BBC in The Times. Two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. It's good. Uh, you know, there would be some people who want to lunch with me and some people who want to lunch with Chris. And so we'd sort of double up and that worked quite well. But for two MPs just to be out troughing, presumably at that point as well, sort of backbench MPs. They were well. both backbenchers and, and quite a lot of what they were good at was speculating about my, my, what might happen in the next reshuffle. And uh, if you go back and look at sort of uh, Google or LexisNexis or the reshuffle stories written between about 2001 and about 2010, almost all of them included a promotion for Michael Fallon and or David Ruffin, which was the least you could do slightly, after they'd given you half a dozen other stories. Slightly more successfully for Michael Fallon than Indeed. David Ruffin. Yeah, yes. Pass me um, so let's, let's have a look at the food. Starters. We're... we're, we're these days, when I've been out with politicians, they even try to skip starters. I, I always check, do you have time for two? Yeah. Um, the real connoisseurs will say, well, let's do a main and a put. Yeah. Um, but yes, a starter is, it's often a quick one courser. Um, what, are we do what are we doing today? Start are we doing starters? Uh, I will be led by you, Matthew. I'm happy to do starters, is what we're here for. Let's do it then. Yeah, we're good. I think we're probably ready to order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll have the crab on toast, please. Yeah. Uh, I'll have a, I'll have the scallops, please. Uh, and I, I decided I was going to have a steak without actually deciding which steak. 
I will go ribeye, medium rare, with the eggs and the peppercorn, please. Me? Oh, I mean, I literally, I'll go, if you've had the ribeye, I'll have the sirloin. Sirloin? Yeah, please, medium rare. I won't have the two fried eggs. I'll, yeah, I'll have, I'll go, yeah, let's go Bernays, yeah, nice. What do we need on the sides? Sides is a good question. I'll have a spinach, please. Cream spinach or spinach lemon and garlic? Cream spinach, please. And I will have some beef dripping fries. Beef dripping fries. Mash and gravy for me, please. Perfect. Thank you very much. So the choice of restaurant, was mainly the main thing we chose because it's a nice steak restaurant not far, far from uh, Times Radio Towers. But how do you go about choosing the restaurant? Well, it depends on what your guests want. Some of them are like, oh, there's a vote at three o'clock, we need to be in the House of Commons. Um, so they might take you to the, the terrace or to uh, the members' dining room or the strangers' dining room. Or there's a place called the German in uh, Portcullis House, as you know, which uh, is a bit more of a cantini type thing. As a Sunday hack and someone who is often doing interviews for books and that sort of thing, people quite often like to be off the reservation and most people in Westminster are extremely lazy so if you get much further than Trafalgar Square in one direction or Melbank Tower in the other you're not going to run into sort of passing the trade anything that involves jumping in a cab for five minutes is going to put off uh, most people so and this is because what what someone doesn't want is they're a cabinet minister your well-known face, key face around Westminster you might say so if a cabinet minister is seen with Tim Shipman on Wednesday and in the big read in the Sunday Times for the weekend, a cabinet minister says Rishi Sunak is useless and he's got to go. There's at least half a chance that someone might have spotted him and put two or two together. Correct. Yeah. I tend to find off the beaten track places. And if you can find nice restaurants that sort of have a nice wine list that you might be able to cake someone out with. Um, um, I'm in a, a member of a club as well, which occasionally I take people to, which um, uh, up in Soho, that makes, you know, gets people out of town. I remember, on the subject of restaurants, I remember once inviting James Wharton, as he then was, he's now Lord Wharton, of, of course. Of course, they all are, aren't they? He was, a, he was a minister, must have been in the Cameron government, I think, and uh, he'd invited him for lunch. His office sent me an email, I think, saying the minister needs to be near the house, so he thought he might like to go to Rue, which, as we've discussed, a very expensive restaurant just across Parliament Square. I mean, really quite expensive. And not really middle-ranking, well, in fact, probably even junior minister of the department. Yeah, that was cabinet minister's only Local kind of government, place. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I judged it. Yeah. yeah, but I said, oh, not really. You know, that seems a bit much of the parliamentary undersecretary for dustbins or whatever he was. So I went back and said, well, you know, actually we could uh, probably go somewhere else. I said, no, the minister's quite insistent that he'd like to go to Rue. And I said, well, if he needs to be near parliament, I'm happy to go to the adjournment, which is literally on the parliamentary estate. He couldn't be nearer parliament. No, the minister really would like to go to Rue. I th I, I'm just trying to think, we either ended up going to the adjournment or we, we may not have had lunch at all. All he was trying to get was a lunch at Rue out of us. Well, now he's a member of the House of Lords, um, you know, I'm sure someone three hundred pounds. Yeah. shout him a nice lunch. Well, maybe maybe uh, our, our decision not to go there added to the financial woes of Rue, which is why it's not there anymore. Maybe the case. You know what, turns out a pickled onion soaked in gin and vodka. It's, it's the business, is it? Quite good. Have a nibble at my tomato. Thank you. Now oh, the food's arrived. Here we go. Thank you very much. Right then. So I've got my, my crab on toast. I've got my three scallops. Three scallops. A little splash of lemon juice. A nice bit of lemon juice. Is that a glass of white to go with the. I think a glass of white with a fish, sounds that sounds like a very good yeah, idea, yeah. Particular preference or should I just... Why don't you pick for us? Yeah, as long as it, thank you very much. Very good. So at what point, as we dig into the starters, at what point in your lunching do you start fishing for oh, information? The strategy of a lunch. Oh. Well, you, you would normally, I think... You would spend the first part of, you know, up the ordering and before anything arrives, small talking. Yeah. I would think what's been going on, who's yeah. been doing what to who, all of that kind of thing. Um, I used to have a sort of catch-all, tell me what's keeping you busy, or something like that. 
and that's then an opportunity for them to get off their chest whatever it is they want to get off their chest if they've got a story to offer they might wheel it out at that point just to sort of some politicians like to sort of they, some of them used to actually say you know I will always sing for my supper and they would um, you know produce a piece of paper with a policy announcement on it or if they were being particularly naughty some kind of write around document that was nothing to do with their own department um, that contained a policy they wanted to kill off so they'd pass that to you in the hope that you would ridicule it in your newspaper and then and this is where it sort of helps to have two journalists working together you then start to sort of cross-examine them a bit and try to make it look as casual as possible, tossing out sort of, well, I heard that this is happening, or are you, are you aware that the Prime Minister is sort of uh, working on this at the moment? Or, you know, is that a good idea? What would be the pros and cons of that? Or have they got some long-term thinking that they're looking at that isn't quite ready to, to go, but that you might think about doing a story on in a few months' time? You can kind of go dibs you know that's mine I've, you know can we have that when it when it's ready yeah um, but the longer the meal goes on and if you've got anything controversial to sort of ask you know you, you tend to leave it till the end um, you wouldn't want to sour the meal um, warm them up yeah yeah that's important and if it's a dinner you know frankly lubricate them a bit as well well yeah I suppose there's an interesting question about alcohol in politics yeah, this is delicious, by the way. My, my, my crab, uh, crab on toast, I love it. Um, but the role of alcohol, he says he finishes off his gin and vodka with a pickled onion. Clearly there's a difference between a couple of glasses of wine just to warm things up a bit and get someone a bit more loose-lipped, and then we know all the other stories about what goes on with alcohol in politics. It's interesting what you've said about how, and I know this as well, there's much less alcohol in politics than there used to be. But I remember... When I was first working in the lobby, I mean, half the lobby was sort of functioning or not functioning alcoholics. Yeah. They were in the bar at 11 o'clock in the morning, came back at lunchtime and fell off their chairs. We sort of thought it was funny at the time, but on reflection, they were just people whose working lives had ruined them. Well, there's one, I mean, I, I guess we can name him because he's written about it in his book. But Damien McBride, who was um, Gordon Brown's sort of main spin doctor, still on the scene now a little bit a quite brilliant man frankly one of the best spinners I've ever seen in action and he was by his own admission a, a very high functioning alcoholic for a large part of that period he was drinking cans of beer at his desk in the morning um, and taking journalists out for considerable amounts of alcohol in, later in the day um, have you ever worried about that about alcohol no I mean I think I've never let it become an issue for me, I don't think. Um, there's all sorts of stresses and strains in Parliament. And I've seen it grab a lot of other people. Um, Thank you very much. But actually there's quite a sort of... Thank you. Slightly parsimonious attitude to everything these days. So I'd say people, you know, I'm, let's be gentle, but say in my mid-40s, um, people who are 10, 15 years younger, um, they don't seem to yeah. see it in the same way. I, don't well, I think that's probably also the same. He's terrible. They're literally having this conversation just as he's brought over Cheers. Two, two goblets of uh, a white burgundy. That's that would nice. do nicely. Very nice with a fishy starter. But you're right. It was seen as a sort of very funny thing back in the day. Um, and it used to be a bit of a tradition where the, the journalists in the sort of daily parliamentary lobby would all sit and have lunch together and it was sort of the done thing to have a yeah. drink then and the sort of senior journalists, I mean those days were figures like sort of Trevor Kavanagh and Michael White on The Guardian and um, David Hughes on The Mail, this is, we're talking you know 20 odd years ago now. You could learn a lot by sitting and listening to those guys over a glass of wine. Absolutely. Um, and then you'd all sort of get on with your working day. And to a degree, I think that sort of sense of camaraderie has been lost a little bit. Um, social media means everyone's kind of out for themselves and who can write the quickest or funniest tweet. Um, and it's a bit of a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, but it was also a massively more hierarchical kind of place. And, and those kind of social functions, I think, reinforce that rather than breaking through it.
So while I sat and learnt a lot, it was a long time before I felt confident enough to sort of break out on my own. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Tim spilt down himself already. Only the starter, and you already spilt. I know. A wee dribble from the from the scallop has made its way. <laughs> has escaped. Well, we've put a shot of starters. They were absolutely delicious. Now just savouring this very nice burgundy. So the steaks are right. There's your eggs, Tim. Two fried eggs on a small plate. Very good. Mash and gravy. Cream spinach, lovely. Thank you very much. Peppercorn. And the Bernays. Bernays. I do have your fries coming. My fries are coming. Thank you. That's. Thank you. you were looking a little bit wrong. I know. I was starting to look at scallops. That I was having a steak and spinach, and that was the full extent of it. I've got to say, your fried eggs look a little overdone, Tim. Well, they look like a um, little bit crispy around the edges. Uh, we'll give them a chance, but but with runny yolks. As long so as the yolks break when I. Uh, he's putting his uh, for the benefit of listeners. He's putting the fried egg on top of his steak. Yeah, there we go. Right, let's get a bit of the Bernays on the go. So, in your your lunch with the minister, you've you've done the small talk. You've had the starters. You've got them warmed up with some light chit-chat. What's, the, what's the, the meat and potatoes of it? What happens in the main course? Well, I think that's where you sort of cut to the chase. Start asking them about stuff you've heard all around Whitehall. What's the government up to? What are they doing? What are they hearing anybody else is doing? Oh. The chips have arrived. Chip Excuse me, can we get some wine, please? Do you, do you want some red wine? I love some red, yeah. So a glass? Yeah, just a glass. Two glasses of red, please. Thank you. You can decide. Some sort of Malbec or something some like that. Some sort of Mal... Yeah, that'd be lovely. So the, the modern journalist, upon hearing something newsworthy, will start whacking it into a Google Doc or notes on their phone. I sort of In think, front of the guest? Yeah, some, some of them do. And I sort of think, well, oh, it's fine it. if they're deliberately imparting information. But if they're saying something that's sort of a little bit offbeat, I mean, in the old days, one or other of us would look at, you'd sort of exchange eye contact with your lunch partner in a kind of, oh, I think we've got a page lead there, or that's, that's rather good, isn't it? Should we push a bit harder on that? Or just occasionally, they'd sort of say something where you thought an extra question might be might be best not to draw attention to the fact that you're quite so interested in it. Yeah. And one or other of you would sort of make your excuses and nip to the loo at that point and scribble, in the days before Google Docs, you would scribble into your notepad and hope that you could still read it later. Um, the red wine has just arrived, so that's excellent news, all that. Cheers. Cheers. That'll do nicely. Well, this state, I'm Contrast that with, with modern... I, mean, I, I remember when I was um, doing some interviews um, for one of my books at the Chequers Summit. Um, Jeremy Hunt was then the health secretary. And someone, they, they were sort of stuck in some boring cabinet that had gone on for four hours about Brexit. And someone started passing around Haribo. And when it reached Hunt, who was health secretary and parsimonious about health and all the rest of it, he said, I think I'll have those. And he basically confiscated them. <laughs> Now, I should ask you about the book. How is the book? When can people expect to see it in the shops? And how pleased will you be that your entire life being consumed by the ins and outs of Brexit for the last seven years will be at an end? Yes, I'm looking forward to the end of that life, I think it's fair to say. Um, it's, I've got a full draft. It's quite long at the moment. I'm just working in a few extra bits. And then I've got to cut, cut, cut. And I'm hoping it will be in the shops in November, so everybody can buy it for Christmas. And if they don't want to uh, read it, they can use it as uh, it'll be very. It'll burn well on a log fire. <laughs> it will be a good dense book. You know, you'll get two or three hours of very attractive. How, how, how many how many words are we talking at the moment? Oh, it's uh, it's less than War and Peace, but not much less at the moment. Put a figure on it. Oh, War and Peace is five hundred and seventy thousand words. Right. So Mine is uh, a little bit less than that, but wow. uh, it needs to come down considerably. Um, I mean, you're, you are essentially a victim of your own success. The first book, All Out War, which 
was such a huge hit, I think, because Brexit happened. Britain voted for Brexit. And lots of people who voted leave or remain weren't sure how that happened. And you wrote the first definitive account of how that happened. And now, seven years on, you're still, you're still going still at it. still going. Yeah, I mean, it's taken over... It changed politics, didn't it? It's taken over all our lives to some degree. It's now much more in the background, but I think everything that happened in that period shaped the kind of the relationships within the Conservative Party, which are still impacting on us now. Um, it has to some degree shaped the economic um, situation we find ourselves in, though obviously uh, COVID and the war in Ukraine are kind of more immediate causes of that. Um, and I think it's changed sort of how a lot of people see themselves and how they relate to each other. And so what started as a kind of political, you know, just say what happened in the room and I'm trying to, in the conclusion at least, try and draw a bit of a few kind of conclusions about what it all meant as well as what actually happened and how it happened and why, you know, a combination of ideology and people's ambitions all kind of came into this big pot and caused quite so much upheaval. Because you've needed an endpoint. So the, fir the, the first one was clearly this is how Brexit happened. The second one was the, the bit in between, and it was what, just after the 2017 election. Yeah, the, most of that book was about the election, and it took us up to the joint report where basically the backstop was created. And the third book begins with the backstop and with Dominic Grieve getting the right to have a meaningful vote. And those two things, frankly, shaped the rest of Theresa May's yeah. premiership for another 18 months. And then, well, then you've got Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Richard Sunak and all. Yeah. It's all in there. But actually, when we get to the end of 2023, that does feel like there's a full stop there if the polls are to be believed and Labour are about to win the next general election when it comes next year. Yeah, and the interesting thing is Labour are, at times, significant players in this, but actually, out of 60-odd chapters, I'd say... There are probably four meaningful chapters on the Labour Party. And that shows you, you know, there was a time when there were the cross-party talks. There was a time when they moved towards a referendum. There was briefly the moment where people broke away from the Labour Party and tried to do something differently. But for the most part, they were uh, viewing it like we were. Um, and they look like they're going to take over. So, yeah, I mean, at the moment, the book ends with Boris Johnson resigning from Parliament. Which looks like a good book end. He's the main kind of character in all senses running through the trilogy. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But the number of endpoints I've had over the years. <laughs> Firstly it was Theresa May going, then it was the Brexit night, then it was Boris Johnson's Christmas Eve deal, then it was you know, Boris going, then it was Trust going, then it was Rishi's deal, uh, Windsor deal, and now Boris Johnson finally shuffling away. watched it all from the sidelines, I'll let you eat your last bit of steak and egg. Having watched it all from the sidelines, have you ever thought about entering politics no. yourself? <laughs> no, not because I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a noble calling and I think what I try and do in these books is show that everybody, for the most part, has a, a good reason to be there and they just sincerely believe different things. Where they differ is in having any ability to bring those things about. Um, they've got a lot of time for people who go into politics. It's a thankless task. A lot of them get abused now in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. You, you know, back in the day, you could get yourself a safe seat, barely ever turn up to a constituency surgery, have quite a nice life, live in a big house, put some expenses in. Um, maybe become the parliamentary undersecretary of state for paper clips um, and retire with a knighthood and the good wishes of um, your friends and family. These days you're going to spend a lot of the time dealing with pretty unpleasant people on social media, getting death threats, wondering which ones to take seriously, doing all that. So I've got loads of time for those people but it's just not my skill set. Um, they have to work out what to do and how to do it. I'm quite good at going, well I wouldn't do it like that. <laughs> I'm less good at After saying. the event. Yeah. There we are. Thank you very much. That was terrific. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
Well, that was really good. That was really good. Oh. Yeah. I might nick a chip. Have a chip. <laughs> Have a little chip. There's a man approaching with a dessert menu. Well, I mean, it'd be wrong not to. Well, we're it? here. Thank you very much. Where actually are the... In the very food? first page. Oh, right. There we are. Oh, there we go. Your classic sticky toffee. Oh, I'm not going to get past blueberry and lime cheesecake, I'm afraid. The trouble with sticky toffee pudding is I would like it, but I will sleep for a week yeah. afterwards. No, I know. Chocolate anglaise, sticky toffee pudding, blueberry and lime cheesecake. Yeah. Peanut butter shortbread. This can help if it's peanut butter. Oh, very good. Thank you. Strawberry and basil pavlova and oil de flower panacotta. What would you what would you, what would you suggest? Sticky toffee pudding. Everybody oh. always says that. <laughs> is it really good? It's, I mean, according to my It's part, normally the best thing on the menu. Sticky toffee connoisseur. This is the best thing Right, uh, on your recommendation, I will have a sticky toffee pudding. Sticky toffee pudding. Okay. I will have the blueberry and lime cheesecake, please. Thank you. It's Tim, as we await dessert there. Um, a sense of anticipation building. Yeah. Um, what does politics look like? As a, How long have you been in the lobby? I have been in the lobby for 22 years. That's much longer than me. Started in 01. No, I started in 2005. I had two years out doing Obama and all that. Oh, yeah. Um, so as, as a watcher of politics over the last 20 years, what does British politics over the next 20 years look like? That's a very interesting question, which I haven't thought about. What does politics look like over the next 20 years? I think it is a little bit more ideological than it was when I first started out and it'd be interesting to see how the Labour Party manages that versus their sort of technocratic desire to get in and you can see them running quite a lot of the Blair playbook at the moment which is we control the spending, we look responsible, we might well match the Tory spending plans but underneath it, a lot of the ideas are things that are a little bit more radical than you would probably have seen Tony Blair attempt. And I think Brexit itself has been a kind of cultural dividing line for the nation. And I think it's not about Brexit, but it's what it signifies, how you voted. And I think that tells you a lot about where people are coming from. And I think it's made people more confident about striking ideological poses. Social media has added to the sort of intensity of people's political feelings and I think it will require politicians who are more sophisticated and more deft at handling all that have an interest in... Hang on a minute Tim, our pudding has arrived. Oh. Sticky toffee pudding. Look at that, That's that, his, that looks as dense as I was expecting. Oh that's a nice amount of uh, gun content. Thank you very much. Well. Thank you. Um, my uh, sticky toffee pudding has arrived. Surrounded by a sauce, which I'll describe as the colour of gravy. Yeah, I mean it's it's the sticky toffee. Yeah, it? yeah. Now, just in case it is too rich. Yeah. I've gone for the complete opposite as well for you to try. You bought me a second pudding. You a second After pudding. all that talk of two dinners. Surely two puddings. There we are. So there this we is go. The, uh, raspberry panna cotta. That's a raspberry panna Look at that. that. Two puddings. Thank you very much. That's going to become a thing. Yeah, he's, a, he's ruined my reputation as a health fitness addict. I was unaware of that reputation. Oh, well, I'm very big on TikTok. I'm doing handstands on TikTok. Bravo. <laughs> Tim, we should finish with, how do you finish your lunch? How do you... When you've taken a senior cabinet minister out, what's the best way that a lunch can end? Uh, the best way a lunch can end is if you sort of just clarify what you think you've learnt. And they will sort of say... Yes, you can have that story, you can have that story, well, give me six weeks on that one and then sort of nail it all down, seal the deal in blood, as it were. Most people don't have pudding, like we've had pudding, but I do remember one occasion where a still-serving member of the cabinet arrived, ate a starter, a main, then a pudding, and then... I nipped to the loo and came back to discover that she'd ordered cheese as well. And this minister did not even touch the cheese. She then demanded a doggy bag and took the cheese back to the House of Commons to eat in her office. And that is easily the most... The, the lunch in terms of, you know, girth of food. 
that came closest to the one we've just had, I would say. Well, um, I don't think I can beat the Cabinet Minister and her bag of cheese. So on, uh, on that note, uh, Tim Shipman, um, thank you for finally settling the, the debt, your bet. The, Boris the debt Johnson. of the bet. The debt of the bet. The Boris Johnson would not be mentioned at uh, PMQs. And thank you for talking me through the art of the political lunch. Um, so I'm going to get stuck back into my sticky toffee pudding before it's all over. Tim Shipman, thank you very much for joining me for lunch. You're very good help. That's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Massive thanks to the people at Hawksmoor for looking after us. It was nice. Don't forget, Patrick McGarvey here for the next couple of weeks looking after you on the podcast. I'll be back in a fortnight's time. We'll be hurtling into party conference season and who knows when there'll be a general election. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Tell your friends. Subscribe. Get in touch. Matt at times.radio if you want to. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. But for now, for me, Matt Charlie, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.